Thank you so much. Well, my name is still David from a few minutes ago. And um, back when the world was young, I was a youth worker in southeast London and uh, a church planter in a place called Deptford uh, before it was gentrified. And um, then I, I helped set up um, Soul Survivor, which is a youth uh, movement that some of you might have heard of and planted a church over in Watford. And I thought that was going to be my life. I thought um, I was going to be planting churches because that's what I love doing and seeing people become Christians and discipling them and helping them get established. But 21 years ago, God interrupted my life and I ended up working for an organisation called Tear Fund. How many of you have heard of Tear Fund? Go on, put your hands up high, don't be ashamed. These are the ones going to heaven. <laughs> and Tear Fund is a big relief and develop, Christian relief and development agency that works all over the world in disaster zones and providing kind of anti-poverty work. And through that was when I first heard of IGM, and I'm going to tell you about that later. And at the end of last year, I became, uh, I, I started leading IGM here in the UK. And when I say that, I always feel I then have to add in a health warning, because you now know the International Justice Mission deals with horrible stuff deals with slavery and abuse and trafficking and violence against people. So I always feel the need to give a health warning. And my promise to you is that I'm not going to try and make you cry. I could make you cry, because there's story after story that is just heartbreaking. But I don't want to make you cry. Some of you will be worried about coming to things like this, and I'm just going to go away depressed. I'm going to make another promise to you which is, I'm not going to ask you for money. Some of you are now really relieved. <laughs> so you can relax. I'm not going to ask you for money. It's going to get worse than that. So I'm going to ask you for something more precious than even your money and more demanding than even your money. So having reassured you, I've now worried you, and you're going to spend the next 20 minutes thinking, what on earth is he going to ask us to do? It will all become clear. I wonder whether, could this row and this row stand up? Thank you. Look at them. Aren't they lovely? There's, if I've done my counting right, there's six of them. I've been talking for about three minutes. If it feels a lot longer than that to you, you're in for a long evening. <laughs> but I've only been talking for about three minutes. And in that three minutes, six children have been sold. Six of them. Please sit down. This meeting's scheduled to last for about 90 minutes. So while we're here, 180 children will be sold. 180 children were sold in the first service in this building this morning. 180 sold at Eltham and at Welling. And 180 children will be sold while we are here. That's two every minute, and they are children. And they're sold into sweatshops and brothels and factories. And we believe, don't we, that children should not be in sweatshops and brothels and factories. Children belong in families and playgrounds and schools. And God knows their names. Every single one of them. All 180 that have been sold while we sit here. God knows their names. I think you've heard of one name 
because I think you've seen videos at some point and heard the story of Cassie. Cassie is 18 years old. I met her a few months ago. And she today is this explosion of energy and life and hope and joy and courage. But when she was 12, she was tricked into the kind of slavery that Sam was just talking about on that video. Someone came and persuaded her family that if they gave her to him, he would look after her and pay for her education and feed and clothe her. And he did all of that. He sent her to a good school and he clothed her and he fed her. And every night and every weekend, he sold her for the use of other people over the internet. This new form of modern slavery that you've joined the fight against, where people across the world can buy the use of a child in the Philippines and direct their own perverted movie. She got rescued. One night she came home and the investigations had happened and the police were there and they rescued her. Alongside rescuing her, they rescued a five-year-old and a baby girl who was a few months old. This man was enslaving. She has discovered liberty in Jesus. And I saw her in a room of two and a half thousand people in Washington, D.C. a few uh, months ago where she energised the whole place. Because when God restrains evil, he also redeems people and puts them back together again. Let me give you another name. Her name's Alita. And I met her in the most bizarre circumstances, actually. She's, she lives in Calcutta, but I met her in Chennai in India. And um, I was in one of the poshest hotels I've ever been in in my life. Everyone was dressed up to the nines. There was a big reception. The great and the good were there because it was an awards ceremony for people who'd done good things against slavery. So local police chiefs and district officials and magistrates and so on. And everyone was getting an award and everyone was dressed up. And the guest of honour was the speaker of the Indian National Parliament. It was all a big deal, lots of big cheeses. And Alita was there because she was receiving an award as a survivor. She uh, was, uh, is 17. When she was 12 or 13, she's not quite sure of her age. When she was 12 or 13, her family was tricked into giving her to someone for a job. Who had promised her a job. She ended up in a brothel where she was raped repeatedly day after day after day after day for three, four years. When she was 15, maybe 16, she was rescued. She was getting an award because she had decided that as God had healed her, he was calling her to go back to her villages to explain to girls like her and families like hers what to be aware of and what to avoid when the very plausible man or woman came offering a job. Can you imagine the courage that that takes? We were in this really posh hotel room. Everyone was dressed up. Alita 
was from the lowest caste level in India. Those of you who know India will know there's a caste system which is very stratified in society. She's from the lowest of the low. She had never been educated. She'd been horribly abused. And she was in the room with the great and the good and the rich and the powerful. I was intimidated in that room. She blew that room away. Because Christ had begun to work in her life and give her back her destiny. Jesus, in John 10.10, Jesus said, uh, talked about the devil and said, the devil is like a thief. The thief comes to steal, kill and destroy. But I have come to bring life. And God is in the business of setting captives free. Like Cassie, like Alita, all the way through the Bible, he is bringing people out of destructive, terrible situations. Perhaps this is seen most clearly in Exodus chapter 2 with Moses at the burning bush. Do you remember that story? God interrupts Moses' life. Moses has run away from Egypt where the children of Israel are slaves. Got free, going about his business. God interrupts him with this miracle of a bush that burns but doesn't burn up. And two things happen. God reveals who he really is to Moses. God shows Moses what he's like. And then God gives Moses a job, a commission, a task. And this is the job. God says to Moses, go back to Egypt where you ran away from and go to Pharaoh and command him, let my people go. Because God wanted a generation of Israelites that was in slavery in Egypt to be the last generation of slaves. I believe that God is still calling people to go to the modern day pharaohs, to go to the modern slave owners and command them in Jesus' name, let his people go. Because they are his people, made by him in his image. People for whom he has dreams and hopes and plans and visions and destiny and potential. The devil has tried to steal, kill and destroy them. And Jesus is bringing them life. And he invites us to join with him in this life-giving mission. So how do we do that? William Wilberforce, who uh, was one of the leaders of the fight against the transatlantic slave trade 200 years ago, William Wilberforce um, said that three things were necessary to end slavery in his day, and I think they're still true. He said, first of all, you needed awareness. You needed to know that slavery was happening that it existed. Secondly, you needed finances to pay for the campaigns and the lawyers and the investigators and all the stuff. And thirdly, you needed prayer. Well, as a community of believers, listening to God, you've already made yourselves aware that slavery exists and you've already given generously to the fight against slavery. What I want to ask you for tonight is your prayers. Slavery is one of the most abusive, violent ways the enemy has to steal, kill and destroy people. There is a demonic power behind slavery that uses the greed and the violence that is in people's hearts to sell, enslave and abuse others, particularly the most vulnerable. If we are seriously going to knock on the doors of sweatshops and brothels and factories... 
We need, first of all, to knock on the door of heaven. We certainly need investigators and lawyers and counsellors, but we need to bathe them in our Father's protective, enabling grace and ask God to do above anything we could ask or imagine or achieve on our own. So this is what I'm asking you to do. This can be the last generation of slaves. Now when I say that, I I tell you what I feel. I feel two different things in this room. I feel some hearts leap and say, yes. And I hear other hearts wilt and say, really? The last generation of slaves? End slavery? Forever? Can it be done? A guy called Walter Brueggemann is an Old Testament Bible scholar. It doesn't matter if you've never heard of him. You just need to be impressed that I've read him. (laughs) And Walter Brueggemann says that the enemy's first attack on the people of God is to rob us of imagination. We stop believing that anything can change or be different. And we kind of know that for ourselves, don't we? We know that somewhere deep in our hearts there's that tugging downward pull which says, do you know, I'm never going to beat that sin which constantly trips me up. I'm never going to get over that hurtful thing that happened. I'm never going to get rid of the shame. I'm never going to get into what I think God wants for me. And what the enemy tells us is that nothing will really change about us. And at the very best, we'll limp into heaven if we get there at all. And the enemy robs us of the imagination that Jesus' death and resurrection can change everything. And the same is true when we think about a world in need. The enemy tries to rob us of the ability to see that things can change. But I believe that this can be the last generation of slaves. I believe it not just because I think God said it, though I do. I believe it not just because it's my hope and passion and conviction, although that's all true. I believe it because over the last 20 years, IJM has proven how slavery can be stopped. I believe it because we've got 20 years of evidence that if you make justice systems work for the poor, the opportunity disappears and slavery massively reduces. But if this is really going to be the last generation of slaves, we need a mighty move of God. And I believe that God is raising up the largest move of justice, prayer for justice, that this nation has ever seen that will bring freedom throughout the world. I believe that God is raising up the largest move of prayer for justice that our nation has ever seen. In fact, I believe beyond the issues of slavery, God is trying to reignite prayer in our time. It's interesting, you as a church just come off of a week of prayer. I didn't know that when I was preparing this. Kind of almost makes you feel that maybe there's a God. Go figure. God wants to reignite prayer. Would you just look around you? Go on, really look. Look at the people around you. Look at how lovely they are. Go on, drink in the beauty that surrounds you. Really look. Swap phone numbers. Go wild. That was a joke. Don't really... Don't really do that. Do you know, I hate to break it to you, but as lovely as you are, the enemy is not that impressed. 
The enemy is not that impressed with our cleverness. The enemy is not that impressed with our money. He's not even that impressed with our diligence. He has frankly seen better. And he is not scared of it. The enemy is terrified when we pray. Because when we pray, we step out beyond ourselves and put our hands in the hands of Almighty God and join his heart and his mission and his will. And the enemy has no weapon that can stand against that. There is nothing the enemy can do to stop the power of God because Jesus died and rose again. Jesus broke every chain. And that's why the enemy attacks prayer so much. That great Christian leader, Eddie Izzard, he said this. He said, um, he said, it seems to him that the devil pulled off a really neat trick because he turned prayer, which is basically talking to Almighty God, the creator of heaven and earth, the most awesome being in the universe. He took prayer, which should have been awesome, and reduced it to a group of people mumbling in cold buildings. I've been to those prayer meetings. You're looking to me, at me like you've never had a prayer meeting like that. That here at New Community, you, you just don't do those kinds of things. But I reckon if we had an honest conversation and we asked ourselves, who here has got their prayer life really nailed? Maybe there'd be someone who'd said, yeah, I'm doing great. I really hope there is. But I know for me, most of my life, I just feel guilty about my prayer life. I feel guilty that... I'm not praying enough. I'm not praying consistently. I don't even, know if, don't even know if I'm praying right. Then I think, is there a right way of praying? And that's what the enemy does, doesn't it? Makes us feel a bit shameful and a bit guilty. And so it becomes harder and harder and we stop. Apart from when people are looking at us in church. Just me then. But I believe that God is reigniting a move of prayer because that's what the enemy is scared of so I want to talk a little bit just for very quickly I want to touch on four bits of the Bible be really quick and that give us four pictures of what this move of prayer is like okay so first picture we need prayer that weeps if you've got a Bible and you want to read it um, you can I'm going to read Psalm 13 I chose Psalm 13. For, I could have chosen any number of Psalms or any bits of the Bible, but I want to illustrate. I chose Psalm 13 for the really spiritual reason that it's short. It says this How long, O Lord, will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? How long must I wrestle with my thoughts and every day have sorrow in my heart? How long will my enemy triumph over me? Look on me and answer, O Lord, my God. Give light to my eyes or I'll sleep in death. My enemy will say I've overcome him and my foes will rejoice when I fall. But I trust in your unfailing love. My heart rejoices in your salvation. I will sing to you, Lord, for you have been good to me. These prayers, these prayers that weep are called laments. The Bible is full of them. They're honest prayers. 
They're prayers which are deeply rooted in reality. There is no glossing over. There's no pretending. There's no making do. These are prayers of anguish and pain and anger and frustration. And they are prayers of hope despite those things. I will wait for you, Lord. I do believe you're coming. You will come through for me. I still trust that you are God and you are good. But right now, Lord, I don't see it. Right now, Lord, how long? You know, talking to God honestly about suffering or injustice is one of the hardest things that we can do. So we often don't. We either give up talking to God or we gloss it over. In that psalm, in the pain and the confusion of that psalm, there was no glossing over. And maybe that's where we need to begin with our prayer life. In the face of the reality about slavery, we need to cry out, how long, how long, God, until you restrain evil? How long, O Lord, until you bring freedom? How many days, God, will girls like Cassie and Alita be raped repeatedly? Where are you in those places, God? How long until you act? Because I believe that you love them and you know their names and you want them to have the future and the hope that you planned for them and that Jesus died to bring them. How long, oh God? You know, maybe prayer starts with feeling that pain. I don't know if you've noticed, but when Jesus confronted death and destruction, he always started by weeping. At the grave of Lazarus in the Garden of Gethsemane, there was no glossing over. There was no pretense. There was pain. On the cross, he cried out, my God, my God, where are you? Our prayer life starts maybe with the feeling, the pain and the anger that comes from knowing that people made in God's image have been destroyed. That's prayer that weeps. The second picture of prayer is prayer that believes. Now, when speakers come to churches, they usually pick slightly obscure Bible passages so that you'll be impressed. I've not done that. So my second passage is one of the most famous passages about prayer. And it's the prayer of Elijah. Now, Elijah was a prophet. Lots have been going on. The passage is 1 Kings uh, 18, and we're going to pick up at verse 42. Loads of stuff has been going on. Some of you will know the story. There's been drought and famine for years. There's been all kinds of conflict with a dodgy king who's introduced idol worship. And Elijah's had a big showdown with the prophets of Baal, who's the idol. And it's all been really exciting. We're going to miss all of that and come to the end of the story. Because at the end of the story, having done all these amazing things, Elijah is now trying to fix the fact that there's no rain. So that's what he's trying to work on. And in verse 41... It says, Elijah said to Ahab, who's the king, go and eat and drink, for there is the sound of a heavy rain. That was a really sick joke. There hadn't been the sound of any rain for three years. But Elijah says, go and, have an eat, go and eat and drink, because otherwise you're going to get caught in the shower, Ahab. And Ahab, knowing that Elijah was crazy, did what he said, and went and had a meal. And then it says... Um, Then it says, so Ahab went off to eat and drink, but Elijah climbed to the top of Mount Carmel, bent down to the ground and put his face between his knees and prayed. And then he said to his servants, go and look towards the sea. 
and tell me what's happening. And the servant comes back and says, there's nothing happening. Seven times this happens, and Elijah kept saying, go back. And on the seventh time, the servant reported, well, there's a cloud as small as a man's hand is rising from the sea. And Elijah said, quickly, let's get the chariots and get out of the way because the rain is coming. Here we have an amazing insight into Elijah's prayer life. There'd been a long drought and famine and Elijah is praying for rain. He prays and prays and prays and keeps sending his servant to find out what's happening. I really love Elijah's servant because I think he thought Elijah was mad as well. So Elijah's there bent over praying like mad and then he says, servant, go and see what's happening. Where's the rain? And the servant comes back and says, absolutely nothing's happening. Zero happening, Elijah. Six times this happens. The servant's going, nothing's happening. It's not working. Nothing is happening. The seventh time, and I kind of get this sense from the words, maybe it's in the Hebrew, that the servant comes back and he loves Elijah, so he kind of says, well, Elijah, if I squint a little bit at the sea, maybe there's a little bit of cloud that's coming up. Maybe just a tiny cloud, like the size of my hand in the distance. Maybe, does that help, Elijah? And Elijah stops praying because he knows that the rain is unstoppable. It would be easy to lose heart, to believe that nothing's happening. 40 million slaves, 180 children sold while we sit here. But I see a cloud on the horizon. Last year, as IJM, we rescued 5,880 victims of slavery. That's a cloud of justice that's growing. Last year, with your help, we saw convictions of 266 perpetrators. That's a cloud of justice that's growing. That's 266 people who can no longer buy and sell children. And the Gates Foundation funded independent research into our work in the city of Cebu in the Philippines. And over four years, they said we had seen through our work of rescuing and convicting and training that we had seen a drop of 79% in the number of children involved in the sex industry in that city in four years. There is a cloud... There is a cloud of justice that is growing. Justice is coming. We need prayer that believes. My third picture is, is like one of the top ten stories in the Bible. Are you allowed to have top ten stories in the Bible? Anyway, it's one of the big ones. Again, nothing obscure. This is the feeding of the 5,000. Okay, one of the big stories. And I love this story um, for two reasons, really. Um, one is I love the fact that there had been preparation and thoughtfulness going on. Out of all those thousands of people, there was one mother who thought a packed lunch would be a good plan. There was one mother who decided that she'd send little Johnny off with some bread and fishes. It was going to be a long day, the sun was shining, big conference, lunch would be good. So I love this story because food's quite close to my heart. And I love the story that somebody prepared, somebody thought, somebody got it right. The second thing I love about this story is that however wonderful and thoughtful and diligent the creation of that packed lunch, it was completely inadequate for the task. 
until it was put in the hands of Jesus. And it says he looked to heaven and he blessed the food and a multitude were fed. I often feel that our investigators, lawyers, care workers, as wonderful as they are, as diligent as they are, are like the five loaves and two fishes in the face of the need that there is. But when we pray, we place them in Jesus' hands and he multiplies it. He does more than we can ask or imagine. I don't suppose, I might be wrong, but I don't suppose any of us in this room are going to be undercover investigators going into quarries or brick kilns or brothels to gather evidence. I may be wrong, but I don't think any of us in this room are going to be involved in trying to get legal cases through courts that are at best desperately slow and at worst horribly corrupt. I don't believe any of us are going to sit with one of the survivors and try and make a connection that would unlock their heart. But all of us can hold hands with those people through prayer. All of us can take our place on the front line by holding them in prayer and putting them in the hands of the God who multiplies to bring impact. Prayer that weeps, prayer that believes, prayer that multiplies. My final one, prayer that persists. Prayer that keeps going. This actually is, um, I think, one of the weirdest stories in the Bible. I'm not really allowed to say it because Jesus told the story. And it's the story of the persistent widow. Some of you might know it. We find it in Luke 18. Jesus is speaking and it says, Then Jesus told his disciples a parable to show them that they should always pray and not give up. He said, In a certain town there was a judge with neither, who neither loved God nor, or feared God nor cared about people. And there was a widow in that same town who kept coming to the judge with the plea, grant me justice against my adversary. And for some time, the judge refused. But finally, he said to himself, even though I don't love God or care about people, I will give her what she asks for because this widow keeps bothering me so I'll see that she gets justice so that she won't eventually wear me out with all her moaning I always find that a strange parable because at first reading it kind of says we've got to twist God's arm we've got to wear him down we've got to kind of bore him you know um, maybe some of you have children um, you know, it kind of feels sometimes like the child who's wanting Haribo. And you've explained about broccoli, and you've explained about dinner is coming, but the child is going on and on and on about Haribo, and you've run out of all your arguments and all your patience, and you end up just shoveling sugar down their throats. Little insight into my parenting. That's why I'm no longer the primary carer in my house. It's almost as if we have to twist God's arm, make him do something that he doesn't want to do. That's not the point of the parable. Jesus is trying to say that there are some things which are so hard, some things that are so big, that they take time. 
that it demands us not to say an emergency prayer of God, please do something, but to pray relentlessly, day in, day out, because there is a battle to be fought. When God asks us to wait and keep persisting in prayer, two things are happening. One, he's working on us. He's changing our hearts, breaking us with the things that break his heart, getting us onto his page, helping us feel what he feels, think what he thinks. He's working on us. The second thing is, it's warfare. It's warfare. Do you remember the story of Daniel in the Old Testament? Daniel was doing a big fast. He was in big trouble and he was crying out to God and needed God to come through and he was fasting for 21 days and nothing was happening. It was Elijah's servant all over again. Nothing was happening. And then after 21 days, an angel, the angel finally gets through to him. And in, you know, in really polite Bible language, Daniel's saying, what took you so long? I needed you 21 days ago, actually. And it's interesting because the angel says to him, I was sent the moment you started praying. But the forces of darkness restrained me. And he taught Daniel that by Daniel persisting in prayer, Daniel was cooperating with God to see the light overcome the darkness. Well, the same, brothers and sisters, is true of us. There are some battles that are big battles that need more than just an emergency prayer. They need persistent commitment. So today I'm asking you if you would join the largest move of prayer this nation has ever seen to bring freedom to the world's most vulnerable people. This became personal to me 13 years ago. I was working with Tier Fund in a city called Chiang Mai in Thailand. And it was seven o'clock in the evening and I was walking down a well-lit street uh, with restaurants and shops and a touristy kind of area, actually with a female colleague. And this young girl comes up to me and asks me if I want to have sex with her. Her opening price was the equivalent of seven pounds. Lord only knows what I could have bargained her down to had I been so inclined. I was able to keep walking. She was not. Because her owner kept her working, that bit of pavement and the bar on the street. God had interrupted me. I'd had a theoretical knowledge that there was slavery and trafficking, but now I had a face (coughs) and an interaction. The people that I was working with in Chiang Mai, I knew also did work in the bars and the clubs in that area. And so I asked them if they could find that girl or tell me about her or what it was like. And they didn't find her. I don't know how they would. But they did find out lots about the sex industry in that little bit of Chiang Mai. And she came probably from one of the hill tribes, which is a very discriminated against ethnic group in that nation. So she was considered worthless. And she, given the age of the average, the average age of the girls working that part of the town, she would have been mid-teens, 14, 15, 16. And she would have worked that street until either she was sold on somewhere else or she was dead. That night, I walked away from that girl. 
But later that night, I promised myself that I would never walk away again. And I'm asking you if you would walk hand in hand with those who live under the curse of slavery. Tomorrow, there's an investigator getting fitted up with undercover cameras and secret microphones to try and gain evidence of slavery that will trigger a police raid, that will trigger a rescue, that will trigger prosecutions. That investigator is in immense danger. They need our prayers. Tomorrow there's a lawyer pulling their hair out because their case that they are pursuing against a slave owner is stuck in legal bureaucracy or a corrupt system. They need prayer to keep having hope and to find a breakthrough. And tomorrow there'll be an aftercare worker sitting down with a girl like Alita or Cassie, looking for the words that will help them bring their darkness into his light so that they can start getting healed. Will you hold their hands in prayer? I'm asking if you would commit to a few minutes minimum prayer a week. We can give you real-time prayer needs from the front line of slavery, stuff that needs God's intervention and God's covering. We can email that to you. And you could find a few minutes to pray every week so that you can join the frontline fight against slavery. You can do that because at the back there's a table. It's got little leaflets on like this. You can fill in all the details, tick the box that says you want prayer. Or you can go to a website, which is that one. Prayforjustice.net. Takes you to exactly the same place. Doesn't matter which one you do. But I would ask you, in the middle of a busy life, in the middle of all the things going on, in the middle of all the passions and cares that we have, don't walk away from those who have nothing. God is still saying, let my people go. He's still looking for the Moseses who will go and say that in his name. Would you join us? Would you please close your eyes? Just as we're quiet and in our silence, I want you to ask the Lord what he's calling you to do, what your response could be. It's not about me persuading you. It's about you hearing what God is asking of you to do.